0: Welcome to Pulp, the show with more twists than a Twizzler factory. Boy, have we got a show for you today. First, we have the unprecedented edition of a story from Hard Boiled. A word of caution, though, this story contains mature themes and gruesome descriptions. It's set in the tenderloin of San Francisco. In the words of a friend, extra tender, extra loin. So put your earbuds in your ear balls if you're around the little ones. Then another story set in San Francisco. This episode might as well be dedicated to the city of Old St. Frank. So let's get to it. Let the Wonderman unfold. Killing time. came in from the store and saw a smoky bear out front. Usually I'd get annoyed by someone asking me for cigarettes, but since I'd just got paid, I was feeling generous. I offered him one, but he said he didn't smoke. Then he went on for a while about how tobacco corporations are a part of the one-world order, and they're trying to get us evolved to breathe smoke for when the world is burning. He said he don't put that kind of garbage in his body, and then took another hit from the brown glass pipe he had in his hand. I tried to escape before he launched into another story, but damn it if he ain't quick, and he started talking about how he thought the room down the hall from me had been left taped up even after the coroner was finished. He said it was on purpose for some very specific paranoid reason that he was just getting started on explaining. I pretended to get a call on my phone, I was really calling my case manager, but she wasn't going to pick up anyway. Not her fault, though. Any one of them are overloaded. Brenda at the front desk buzzed me in. Usually she tries to chat me up, but I can avoid her trying to build rapport as long as I'm on the phone. My case manager was a big help, and she didn't even have to answer the phone. Can't fault Brenda, neither. She's waiting out the clock, same as us. Different clock, though. I live in an SRO. For those of you who don't know, an SRO is a building full of single rooms. you have got a locked door and a reception in the front. There's an area for mail and some lockers in the common area. Then you have case managers in the back. And all of our rooms are upstairs. The hallways look like a hotel that doesn't expect to get a whole lot of care. I mean, it is called a hotel. The Crystal Hotel. Bit on the nose for a lot of folks in here. It was built before I was even born. Probably given its name to sound classy or something. Like how in Oakland, they didn't like how East 14th had a reputation for uh, ladies of the night. So they changed the name to International. Now, International carries the reputation. I don't know. Crystal Hotel sure fits now. Time can change a lot. Anyway, I'd made it up the elevator without any further harassment, and was on my way to my one room when I noticed a commotion going on down the hall. Usually it's pretty quiet in the halls. We socialize downstairs or on the street, or actually in each other's rooms. Mostly everybody keeps to themselves in the building, so having a congregation in the halls meant something was going on. The room was cordoned off, even though the coroner and everybody had done their job a solid week ago. Just like Smokey Bear said. I don't know why the police tape was still there. Maybe it was somebody just killing time and milking the clock. Maybe somebody just forgot or wasn't paying attention. Could be some fresh do-gooder trying to fix the world by doing things by the book. The only people that pretend to care about people like us are the people who are too fresh to have given up or been burned out. That's the thing about murder and the T.L., If anybody ever hears about it, it's that nobody cares unless it's really gruesome. If it's regular murder, it's just another day. A while back, there was this guy a couple buildings down that was on a meth bender of his life. thought his neighbor was trying to control him through his phone, so he emptied out his skull with a knife to get out the transmitter. He didn't actually want to kill the guy, he just wanted to fix his antenna. The whole city was talking about that for weeks, Maybe just days. I what the hell do I know? Anyway, the only people that cared or pretended to care was because it was crazy. It might as well have been from a Netflix show or something for them—just something for them to pass the time. Ah, look at me going at it. I guess I've been around Smoky Bear too long. Whatever. Anyway, the room was all cordoned off, but whoever was the last person in there forgot to lock the door in a building full of people that have nothing but time on their hands and a shiny object to distract us. I was going to take a look, but just a look. The crowd was three people, really. But even that is a lot for folks who don't tend to socialize in large crowds. Sean was averaged to short height, depending on how they felt that day. Short hair and meth mouth like you wouldn't believe. They still wore a mask, which made it even harder to understand them. Most people did their best to guess what they were saying and then go with it until they correct you. Not the most efficient way of communicating, but it beats asking them to repeat what they're saying three times every time. Then Brian was there. Thank God there was somebody there to translate for Sean. Brian had a mustache that looked like he used to run game way back in the day, but just like most everybody from back then, he didn't make enough to make time disappear. And somehow he never made it to prison either jail a bunch of times, and in and out of programs, usually on his way out due to what the shrinks usually labeled mood dysregulation, and what we just call anger issues. He was a nice enough guy, just didn't like authority. I guess nobody here really did, it's just a matter of if you have the energy to push back, and Brian certainly had the energy, and he didn't even do math. JT was a wiry guy, always wore a fresh Montreal Expos cap. It was about twice the size of his head, and small, rectangular wire-framed glasses. It was always an expose cap, never anything else. He was always slightly hunched over, looking down at his phone. It sometimes felt as if he'd never looked you in the eye, but always looked at his phone while he talked to you. He was never invited anywhere. Not that he wasn't welcome, he just kind of always showed up. Apparently, I had walked in on a conversation between the three of them. They had decided to do something about the money hidden in the room. The cops didn't know it because nobody in my particular building was stupid enough to talk to cops, even when they're high. There was a strong rumor floating around that the guy that lived there had enough off-the-books hustles to set aside a stash and get the hell out of there. Thing is, you can't make enough to actually get out of there without fudging the numbers a bit. You might get a job, but as soon as you got a job, then your rent goes up and all the exemptions you had for not having a job go away. All of a sudden, you don't qualify for anything and you got to work two jobs just to keep the worst housing in the city. It's not that nobody wants to work, it's just that at the end of the day, nobody pays you anything worthwhile. Not for people like us. So this guy, the rumor was had a stash off the books that he could still look like he didn't have a job keep the exemptions and get up a stash until he could get out he didn't really talk to anybody in the building either now we didn't socialize in the common areas but we did socialize this guy the only thing we knew about him was his name and that he had multiple hustles that kind of thing you can't hide from anybody in a place like this oh and he didn't use like nothing not even weed you had a guy that everybody in the building thought was getting a stash somewhere and who didn't use, and all of a sudden ODs on fentanyl? Sure. So we're in a dead man's room looking for something that may or may not exist. Oh, right, the conversation I walked in on was that they'd already looked through everything and there wasn't any money. Like, not cash. So they decided it was there, just not money. Like something there was valuable enough to be the guy's stash. Because who keeps actual money lying around in a place like this? I mean, they had a point, but I figured whoever got to him had already got it. Or why else would they have done it? The curry I got was probably already cold by now, and who am I kidding? I did have time to kill. There wasn't a whole lot to take up space in there. I mean, that wasn't a whole lot of space, but still, just a bed, dresser, and a portable closet. We looked through all his stuff again. There wasn't even much in the dresser, right? I think when he got his ticket punched he was wearing his only clothes. The guy was disciplined. All he had was a picture on the wall a few books. There was a desk in the corner that looked like it could be an antique. No letter with some stamps on it. Some postcards taped to the top of the desk in an old wooden box with ornate carvings on the side, a few knickknacks in it. What about the stamps? Brian said, moving before anybody could say anything. Not that he would have listened to them anyway. I saw it in a movie once, some guy hid a bunch of money in some stamps. We all fumbled around Brian as he grabbed the old letter. JT got in there somehow, took a picture, and got out. We talked a bit about how much they could be worth before JT interrupted and said... They're antique, but they ain't worth much more than $2. I mean, we would have found out eventually, but it was a buzzkill to hear it so soon. Read the room, man. Then I saw it. It wasn't the kind of thing that screamed hidden treasure when you looked at it. I mean, that's kind of the point, right? I didn't say shit, though. I was just going to sweat it out and while everybody else walked around trying to figure out what in that room it could possibly be. I didn't want to let them know that it was even there. Best option for me was to let them think it wasn't there and then make off with it myself you can judge me all you want but look at it my way i've seen people killed for the shoes on their feet you get five people in a room with a bunch of money in whatever form and as soon as it materializes somebody's gonna die sure i benefited from it but i ain't kill anybody and keeping it all to myself made sure everybody else in that room stayed alive all I knew was that I needed to keep my big damn mouth shut before anybody could figure anything out. What's about that painting? Sean said and then mumbled something else. I wasn't too sure what they said, but they were pointing at the painting on the wall and that filled in enough blanks for me. It was some kind of painting, but we used Google Image Search to find out what it was. I mean, JT automatically used Google Image Search to find out what it was guy probably got it from a thrift store for 10 bucks or found it lying on the street it had a gray metallic frame that looked like foil had been pressed over the wood in some sort of tacky way that nobody would pay any mind to then i found an old book an old hardcover copy of the truth about charlie looked like some dope would think it was a priceless artifact so i thought i could pass it off as something yeah this looks old maybe it's valuable the investigatory committee looked it over. Sure is old. Get it here! Nah, looks like it goes for 25 on eBay, JT said, looking at his phone. Damn, nothing would work on this crowd. That box looks old. Maybe it's an antique, I said, trying to throw them off the trail. Brian found a marking that it said it was made by Liebman and Katz in a shop on California Street in 72. JT found out in no time that the shop had closed in 97, and Brian said the box wasn't worth anything. He said he lifted something like it a while back from a thrift store because it looked valuable, tried to pawn it off, but couldn't pay the guy to take it. They'd gone through everything, and they all knew they weren't going to find it. They were just hanging around like you do after you already scratch your scratcher card. You didn't win anything, you're just lingering in disappointment, hoping things were going to change. Sucked me. I was waiting for everybody else to leave so I could grab it. JT was the first to go. Didn't say anything. Nobody noticed either. Just disappeared. Sean saw somebody that owed them a cigarette and chased them down the hall. At least I think that's what they said. Brian and I just sat in awkward silence for a bit until I figured it would be obvious i know something if I stayed so I called my case manager again to get out. My room was at the end of the hall, so I could see the whole thing through my peephole. I closed the door, turned around, and watched. I was getting hungry, so I opened up my Styrofoam to-go box and ate my lukewarm curry in between taking glances through the hole to see when Brian left. He stayed, though. I ate the whole plate and waited some more until I finally saw him leave the room and go down the hall. I put my ear to the crack in the door and listened for the door to the stairwell to open and close, telling me that he'd left the floor. Then I opened the door and ran down the hall back to the dead man's room as fast and as quiet as I could. I grabbed the painting as quick as I could and headed out and hoped to get to my room before anybody would notice. Except someone did. As soon as I walked around the corner, Brian caught me. You think you're slick, huh? He said. I jumped a little. I don't startle easy, but anybody would have jumped like that. I was too caught up in my own head to notice him. You're gonna give me that painting, Brian said, staring me straight in the face. It's not that he was actually tough, it's just that he was always angry. You never know when he was gonna pop off. He was already on thin ice with the nonprofit that ran the SRO building, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was if I made a big deal out of it. Everybody's eyes would be on the painting, and I couldn't have that. Best option for me was to give him what he wanted. Sure, I said. I took the painting out of the frame and handed it to him. You really want to be that petty, he asked. I have a crayon drawing I want to frame, I said. He didn't like that. His face got bright and red. For a second, I thought he was going to take the frame, too. But he just sat there stewing in his rage issues. You think you're smart, he said. You got me. You have the painting. Let me keep the frame and save ten bucks. Call it a finder's fee. Fair's fair, I said. He snatched the painting from my hand, damn near ripped my whole hand off, and walked right off and left me holding the frame with my hands shaking like an old washing machine. The next day, I packed the frame into my backpack, took an Uber across the bridge, bought a train ticket to Sac, found a pawn shop where I had enough money on hand to make it worth. It. Sold the frame. They waited before giving me the money to verify that it was pure rhodium. They said they could give me a good amount now, but I'd need to come back every few months to get the rest. You know, since they didn't have it all on them, probably wouldn't for a while. I said put it in writing and we were good. Worked fine for me. I didn't want that kind of cash on me all at once. I mean, hell, look at the last guy. I needed to disappear and for time not to exist. When you're poor, the clock is your master and you're just waiting it out. When you're rich, you can toss the clock in the can and not look back. So that's what I did. I tossed the clock in the trash and never looked back. Bought another bus ticket to Chico and found a room for rent. Most of them were for college students, but I was able to find a bunch of old hippies who were perfectly happy to leave me alone and had no problem with me drinking and smoking weed. For the rest of my life, no one haunted me down. No more waiting out the clock. Instead, I killed time itself. No more waiting for money on the first of the month. No more being around people who are just waiting to take you down a notch as soon as you get a step up. The other night I got really high and I had this thought, like, maybe the same people that invented money were the same that invented clocks. Then I thought maybe I was the new Smokey Bear for this building. I may not have had the clock anymore, but I guess things were still going in circles. How about it, folks? Now that's how you hide some treasure. Next up, we have a little short. We're not sure where this story belongs, so strap yourselves in and enjoy the show. The Thing in the Fog When I first moved to San Francisco in 1995, I couldn't do much. I'd hitchhiked all the way from Bakersfield and got a job at a record shop in the Sunset somewhere off Judah. I don't really remember. I tried to get a place in Haight-Ashbury, but turns out it wasn't the capital of hippydom that I thought it was. There wasn't much for me to do in general. I was too broke to do much more than pay rent. I wasn't sure what I was going to do now that I'd kind of settled. I spent so much time trying to get there, all the rest was so uncertain. So I usually found myself wandering a park in the middle of the night. People always say not to do that because of all the seedy characters. You know, at the time, I kind of looked like a seedy character, so people generally left me alone, which is what I wanted. I needed time to figure things out. I started to find myself at Land's End in the middle of the night. Nothing to do and too restless to sleep. It's a nice spot. A lot of cliffs with whitewater waves crashing into the rocks below. Usually I was there long enough to see a few ships come in. Just a light in the distance until I could see the outline. One of these nights, in the middle of winter when the night sky seems blacker than usual, absent of most stars, and the water and its reflection is like a pool of ink, I felt truly alone. The lights of the city were far enough behind me and the city noises were distant enough for me to feel like I wasn't really a part of it. The fog bank was coming in like a wall from the ocean. Clear as day on my side but, but miles of uncertainty past the approaching blanket. A light appeared in the wall of fog. I say light but at first it was really just a pale green glow it was higher than it would be on a ship and there was no sound of a helicopter also it was a pale sickly green not the bright industrial lights it began to grow but mostly to the side like it began to be a little bit of an oval shaped then a second light appeared like it was obscured by the first one first it was a darker glow in the fog Then I saw the dark outline. It seemed like a darker tuft of fog at first in the swirling, gnarled cloud. Then, as the lights moved toward the Marin headlands, a lapse in the fog in between the banks of swirling knots showed a glimpse of the thing. I only saw it for a moment. I even leaned in as if that would make it more clear before another swirl of fog engulfed the shape again. I was stunned. If I didn't know any better, I would have sworn I saw a face, but I told myself it was just the fog playing tricks. Where before I was only curious, now I was frozen. I didn't feel the cold anymore, not the discomfort of the rock on my seat. I was torn between the feeling that I needed to get the hell out of there and the question of where I would go that would be safe. The glow and the shape kept moving forward. Faster than the fog, and before it could emerge from the fog on its own speed, a ball of fog had receded and revealed the thing fully all at once. It was the giant head of a squid-like creature floating through the fog. With it was the giant head of a squid-like creature floating through the air with tentacles underneath, moving back and forth like an octopus walking on the ocean floor. Except they didn't even touch the water. The pale green glows I saw in the fog revealed themselves to be eyes looking dead ahead, fixed, like a burned-out worker on Friday, brain-dead, staring at a wall. skin was oily and wet, and dripped entire waterfalls into the sea. It didn't look like it had any scales, but it looked reptilian somehow, and the more I looked, the more it felt like it was a slight green tint, like the color of its eyes. The more I focused on the color the more it looked like an oily black. When I focused my vision on a thing, creature, whatever it was as a whole, the green tint appeared again. I felt an odd, comforting, like the world was ending, but it wasn't so bad because I wouldn't be alone. The whole city would be ended with me. For a moment, an estranged thought intruded my mind. I wondered if whatever this thing was had come to make a Faustian bargain with me like it would offer me all the money in the world and the fanciest apartments with the best wine if only I would exchange it for my soul. But it just moved on. From what I could tell, it passed between me and the Golden Gate Bridge, over the Presidio and straight into downtown, and dissipated just like the fog it came from. I'm not sure that if anyone would believe me if I said anything. They might have thought it was a trick in the fog. You see anything in the fog and the dark and... Who among us has seen something that we find easier to convince ourselves that we didn't see it in the first place, rather than reconcile ourselves with the terrible reality of what we'd seen. All I knew was that something was coming to San Francisco, and I wasn't sure it was the place for me anymore. How about it, folks? That's another one from Tales of Mystery and Macabre, but we figured it'd be best if you didn't know going in. The next episode, airing in two weeks, will be for Patreon members only, so if you want the Christmas special, head on over and become a patron today. You'll get two shirts with the deal, both related to our upcoming Vasquez and Walker stories, and they'll ship when the relevant episodes air. You won't want to miss out, there's some certified doozies. That's it for this week. May Wonderman follow you wherever you go.